As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my, my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that when, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mariah. Well, friends, in contemporary secular Australia, I reckon Anzac Day is probably the holiest day of the year. What do you think? Today, the 25th of, of April, is perhaps the most religious day of the year, if I could put it that way, for, for many, many Australians. Aussies gathered this morning at dawn. They've been gathering, I notice, at the football. They've been gathering this evening. And they've been gathering this whole week in remembrance of, of fallen family members, of fallen countrymen, to honour the service and the sacrifice of the men and women that have served their country in various theatres of war uh, down through the years. Anzac Day has actually become more and more popular. I remember uh, growing up, there was the thinking that it would eventually sort of die out, that the young people weren't really interested in, in this march. But, of course, the opposite has, has taken place. Anzac Day has continued to, to grow in, in popularity. Uh, pilgrimages, I mean, they do use this term, don't they? Pilgrimages, the sort of religious language to, to Gallipoli on Anzac Day. Uh, and Carly and myself have done just that. We've been there with thousands and thousands of young Aussies and, and Kiwis lining the, 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 the hills of, of Gallipoli there for, for the dawn service. It's become incredibly popular, and I think that's the case because uh, for a lot of Aussies, sadly, we've, we've lost touch with the, the Christian rites of passage, the communal rituals that hold a society together, that, that, that unite us and in many ways actually define us. So into this vacuum of, of meaning, into this sort of void of, of any sense of, of, of eternal, of the eternal in, in Aussies' lives comes Anzac Day, and I think it does give Aussies an opportunity to fill that void that they try to fill with all manner of toys and, and distractions. Anzac Day gives Aussies at least a, a form of a sense of belonging or of tribe or belonging to something bigger than yourself. And I think that's part of the reason why Anzac Day has become so popular. I had the honour of being uh, the chaplain to the local RSL sub-branch uh, back in Jeringong. And I can tell you that if you ask any returned servicemen, they don't seek to glorify war. Far from it, they will tell you that, that war is, is hell. 
It is, it is a downstream effect of the brokenness of this world, or a downstream effect of the fall that we read about in the, in the opening chapters of, of Genesis, rather. They gather together to remember. They gather to honour the service of those who lost life and limb in the defence of freedoms that we, that we take for granted uh, today. So, in remembrance of all those who, who never returned from various uh, theatres of war, you will often hear on Anzac Day, either in prayers or perhaps in some of the keynote addresses that are given, uh, there's a quote from Jesus himself. Uh, it's in the middle of our reading today. And quite often on Anzac Day as the chaplain, I would hear um, other members of the RSL quoting Jesus by saying, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. The message translation renders it this way. This is the very best way to love, to put your life on the line for your friends. And the Good News translation says this. The greatest love you can have for your friends is to give your life for them. So this morning I want to unpack these notions of service and of sacrifice to define this notion of love and to ask how can we apply it in our lives this week. So friends, why don't we ask for God's help in doing just that? Let's pray. Loving Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you might speak to us through it. Father, we pray that you might come alive through the pages of Scripture. We pray that you might see, help us to see a, a new angle, a, a takeaway that we can apply in our lives. Father, we pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you might increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. And the people said, Amen. Now, I reckon love is perhaps one of the most abused words in the English language. What do you reckon? This English word love uh, has come to mean any number of things today. Uh, for example, in the original Greek of the New Testament, there's various different words that the Greeks had for love that we simply translate into these four letters, L-O-V-E. But I think this word love has come to be debased and, and, and abused, hasn't it? We say things like, oh, I love salt and pepper squid. I love those frames you're wearing. I love that dress. Oh, she loves water skiing, but he loves classical music. We use this word love simply to mean something. It's something that I really, really like. We use it to mean this is something that brings me pleasure, don't we? That's what I think we mean when we, when we use the word love. But what does God say about love? How does he define love? Well, this passage today... Uh, it gives us a crucial understanding of what love looks like, of how we'd recognise love if we ran into it in the street this week. The context of our passage, it's always important to look at the context of the passage. If you want to open up your Bibles or check on your eye thing, you'll notice that, that this is uh, taking place on the night before his betrayal. This is taking place on what we might call Maundy Thursday. We had a Maundy Thursday service a few weeks ago. It's an old, it comes from the Latin, mandatum novum, simply meaning new commandment. Because this is the night that Jesus gives us his new commandment to love each other as he has loved us. And he repeats it here in this passage in chapter 13. You see, this, uh, this passage of scripture, this, this chapter 15, 
is part of a larger section of Scripture that runs all the way from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17. We call it the Upper Room Discourse. If you get into John's Gospel, you realize pretty quick that he covers a whole lot of territory and then slows down. John has 21 chapters. And the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday happens in chapter 12. So that, that what we might call Holy Week spans almost an entire second half of John's gospel. John dedicates a lot of real estate to this one evening, this final teaching, this final bit of teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. It's Jesus, almost what you might say, his final will and, and testament. It's Jesus' final teaching to his disciples to to try to equip them for what lies ahead. He knows that he's about to be betrayed and and arrested and and, and crucified. And so he's he's trying to to help them manage the days that come. Of course, the disciples would fail miserably uh, to, to, to live out the instructions. But of course, we know that that isn't the end of the story. So this is part of Jesus' upper room discourse. He's gathered with his disciples. He's already told them that to love each other as he has loved them, and he's already washed their feet as an example of, of what that looks like. So our passage today from chapter 15 is smack bang in the middle of it. And again, if you've got it open in front of you, you'll see that the previous paragraph is actually Jesus talking about the vine and the branches. So our passage today is actually Jesus offering a commentary on what it means to remain in Jesus' love. Of course, the vine and the branches is a separate message all to itself, but I think we can conclude the point of the vine and the branches teaching is that we've got to remain connected to Jesus, that without him, we can produce no fruit, we can do nothing. As followers of Jesus, we, the branches, must remain connected to the vine in order that we might produce much fruit. And we know what the fruit of the Spirit is, don't we? Paul tells us in Galatians uh, chapter 5, it is what? The, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Gen- that too, Grandma Beth. And self-control, exactly right. I always forget one. I love it that there's people in my church that know the Bible better than I do. I think that's great. The fruit of the Spirit, and the first of these is love. Elsewhere, of course, Paul tells us that the greatest of these is love in the famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. And so here is Jesus actually defining for us what this love looks like. He says, to remain in me. He tells them to love each other. And now Jesus is going to flesh out what he means by that. Now, if you look in verse, in, in verse 9, you'll see the very first definition that Jesus gives us of what this love looks like is that it is the same love that the Father has for him. Jesus gives us a baseline of love, and and he says, the same love that my heavenly Father has for me, I also have for you. We here on earth can really only imagine the sort of intimate connection that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have within the Godhead. It's important, Christian, to know that we don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists as three persons. Our God is, is at his very core a relationship. God is love. That is why whenever you see a Christian weddings, for example, that we look to the Godhead as an example of how to relate to each other in perfect love. Christian marriage is, is but a reflection of the relationship that exists 
within the Godhead. God sent his son to earth. He put on skin. He added humanity to his divinity. Jesus is God incarnate, from the Latin carne meaning flesh. God in skin, God in the flesh. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you want to know the standard of love, it's the love that that the Father has for me and and, and I for him. And, And then he goes on to say, just as the Father loves him, so he has loved us. Friends, this is mind-blowing stuff, mind-blowing stuff in spite of all of our failures, in spite of all the times that we mess up, when we get it wrong, when we hurt him and betray him, despite all of that. He loves us like our heavenly Father loves him. This is God's graciousness. We should be so very thankful. He knows what's about to happen. Jesus knows that he's about to be betrayed, and arrested. He knows that Peter's about to deny him. He knows that the disciples are all going to abandon him and run and flee and hide, yet he still loves us. He loves them in the same way that his heavenly Father loves loves him. He goes on to tell them uh, that uh, the way to remain in his love, again, it is a, a reference to the vine and the branches, is, is, is to obey the commands that he is given them. Now, let's pause for a moment and acknowledge that the world would have some problems with this notion, that the idea of the way to show how we love is to, is to obey someone. The world isn't real big on obeying at the moment, is it? Some might even call this an abusive sort of relationship. The world will try to tell you that you shouldn't let anyone tell you who you are. You shouldn't let anyone tell you what to do or who you are or to define you. I, I will define me. I am my own boss. I am my own person. I'm going to do me, and don't you dare try to tell me otherwise. Parents are even encouraging kids to define for themselves who they are, aren't they? They let their children decide who they are and and what they they want to be. This is having devastating consequences for the next generation of children growing up, for even being told that they can decide what gender they are. This is hurtful, destructive stuff. You see it all the time. Um, Parents saying, oh, little Timmy's going to decide what the family does. Little Timmy didn't want to come to church this week, Pete. I feel like telling them, little Timmy doesn't get to decide that sort of stuff. Little Timmy doesn't get to make decisions for your family. Timmy's nine. The way a child shows their love for the father is by humbly obedient being obedient to their mother and to their father, to their parents. These children who grew up with this entitled mindset grow up to be men and women who have exactly the same attitude, and it's so very destructive, isn't it? We see it all the time in the news recently, these entitled men, these entitled boys who shave, really, who don't take responsibility, who use and abuse women, who see women simply as a means for bringing themselves pleasure, who if they can get away with cheating, then they will, because there's no baseline. There's no actual substance for any sort of accountability in their life at all. No respect for authority. I'm just going to do life my way. You know, the number one song at funerals is Frank Sinatra's My Way. I've had the misfortune of actually leading a few funerals where they requested Frank Sinatra's My Way as the coffin's going out of the church. 
had to restrain myself from kicking the thing over and say, you selfish old bugger. (laughs) Just between you and I, nobody's watching. It is so hard not to say stuff like that. He lived a selfish life. I'm sorry. Now, I'm a minister and I try to be gracious and... But let's be honest, that's the life many Aussies are living today. They are living for themselves. We are raising a generation who think that they get to make their own rules and they go through life doing just that, doing it their way. It's tragic. It's so incredibly sad and it's it's so incredibly destructive. Jesus says the path to a truly fulfilling life is to actually obey the master of the universe, to live a yielded life, a surrendered life. That is the way to fulfilment and to life abundant. And of course, he's not doing anything, he's not expecting anything from your eye that he doesn't model himself. Jesus uh, obeys his call from his father to go and die on a cross. We know that in a few moments, a few hours' time, he's going to be sweating, he's going to be sweating blood, he's going... If there's any other way, Lord, please please let it be so. But no, he's obedient to the call of his heavenly Father to die in our place in order that we might live. Obedience is proof of a disciple's love. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, the most well-known, famous hymn of all time, uh, wrote that if two angels in heaven were given assignments by God at the same time, One of them to go and rule over the mightiest nation of the world and the other to go and sweep the streets of the filthiest village. Each angel would be completely indifferent as to which one got which assignment. It simply wouldn't matter to them. Why? Because the real joy lies in being obedient to God. Then in verse 11, Jesus tells us why he's telling us all of this, why he's telling us to love each other and and to be obedient. He he states very plainly in verse 11, he's telling that the reason for all of this is, is that his joy might be in us and that our joy might be complete. This is for joy. This is for us. I love the message translation, how it puts verse 11. It says, I've told you these things for a purpose, for a reason that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. Do you like that? That my joy, my joy might be your joy and that your joy might be wholly mature. The end result of obedience is abundant joy. Friends, that is my testimony. That is my testimony, particularly, I've got to say, over the last few months here at church in the marketplace. I have a lot of people asking me, a lot of mates have known me for years and years, how's the new placement going, Pete? They don't know a lot about you, but they know that it's in, they know you're near Bondi somewhere. And they say, how's Bondi? And they say it with a slight mocking tone. They say it as though, oh, yeah, Pete, hard work down at Bondi, is it? They think I'm out the back surfing Monday to Sunday. I have to tell them, well, yeah, I'm living, I'm living the good life. I'm, I, I am... I am living life to the full. That's what I tell them. I tell them straight up, you know what, I'm living the dream. And I can see them go, yeah, that'd be right. But I'm very quick to tell them, no, 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 
doesn't mean it's easy. I've been running pretty hard these past few months. I've been working hard. It's been hard work. I don't have a lot of brain space left for much else other than church at the moment. There's a lot of things to learn about our church family, a lot of people to get to know. I'm seeing faces that I still don't really know yet. This has been hard work, but you know what? I'm loving it because I've been obedient to his call upon my life. I wouldn't be anywhere else for all the money in the world. So I tell them, yes, yes, I'm living the dream, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it's a walk in the park. It simply means that I'm where God wants me to be. I pray that that is the same for you as well, that you find God's call and that you are obedient and that that his joy might be mature in you because you have found your spot in this world. It's not going to make everything easy. It's not going to make life a bed of roses. We'll get to that in a second. But it does mean that you will have found a purpose, will have found your place in God's universe. And how are we to do this? How are we to put all this into practice? How do we remain in God's love? Well, it's the horizontal component. He tells us in verse 12, again, very clearly, he says to, rem- to, uh, to remain in his love is to obey his commands. And to do that, we need to love each other. He tells us to, to com- he commands us to, to love each other. Note in Luke's version of this event, however, the disciples gathered around the communion table have actually had a bit of a squabble at this point about who would be the greatest. And here comes Jesus saying, love each other. So can you see the context here? Jesus, it's quite pointed. And know that in a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. If you know anything about first century Palestinian roads, you know that this wasn't a particularly appealing job. Washing someone's feet was the job of a servant or even a a slave. Yet Jesus takes the form of a slave and kneels at their feet and washes his disciples' feet. This is groundbreaking. This is revolutionary stuff. This is is something that the, the disciples are struggling to get their head around. Love each other through humble acts of Service like washing their feet. This is the sort of stuff, this is the teaching of Jesus that turns the world on its head, friends. This is the sort of countercultural stuff that turns the world on its, on its head. And then he gets to this famous verse, verse 13. He says, uh, there's no greater love than to, to, to give your life in service to your friends. Of course, Jesus is about to do precisely that. Again, he's about to live out, embody his own teaching. This is the gospel, friends, that God loved the world so much. He loved you so much that he sent his one and only son into the world to die on a cross so that whoever, who? Whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. And so this sort of sacrificial living, this cross-shaped living, this Easter-shaped living is not just an Easter thing. It's an everyday thing for the follower of Jesus. And this is what happened to those 12 gathered in that upper room that night. As far as we know, they were all martyred or, 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 or at least uh, exiled. It, it didn't end well for any of those people. They were willing to go to their death, to follow 
their Lord and, and their Saviour. In verses uh, 14 to 15, he, he, he says, and listen to this, I, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. He gives them an, an upgrade in their relationship. Did you know that only Abraham was called a friend of God? Put yourself in the feet of these Jewish men knowing that it was only Abraham that was called a friend of God. And now Jesus is giving them that same status. This is Jesus saying, you are part of my family. Elsewhere we are described as co-heirs of Christ. It's a tremendous privilege. Jesus calls you and I friends. He says he chose us. He says, I've chosen you. Now this is another very key point for the follower of Jesus to get their head around. He's saying, listen, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I think today in Australia in 2021, we need to remember this, that it's Jesus that takes the initiative for us. We didn't choose him, he chose us. You can get into some very deep theology called predestination, but I want us to simply know this morning that this is important because it's all Jesus. He has done the work. We don't save ourselves. He has done it for us. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. What this means is that there's no room for pride for the follower of Jesus. There's no room for that sort of sanctimonious, stuck-up, religious type of person in the Christian faith, because it's none of our doing. We can't save ourselves. It's all Jesus. There can be no room for pride or looking down on other people for the follower of Jesus. The other flip side to that coin of pride is that sort of groveling, I'm not worthy sort of attitude that, again, some people struggle with. If that's you, friend, know that Jesus has calls you friend. He's died for you. He loves you. You are precious. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are valued. You are wanted. You are needed in the body of Christ. He wants you to go on to produce much fruit. He's got a role for you to play, a part for you to play. And when you don't play it, when you don't do it, when you don't fulfill it, the body of Christ as a whole suffers because there's a hole where where we need you to be using your gifts. And the rest of us have to try to cover for that and and step into roles that we're not really gifted for. It gets frustrating for everybody. The great English conductor, Sir John Barbaroli, was a great conductor and cellist. He conducted a great symphony orchestra before a standing room audience only one evening in a concert hall. That was a little bit unusual because this particular concert hall uh, was used for cultural events midweek and then for church on Sunday mornings. This particular evening that was packed to the rafters as the great man conducted the symphony. One man noticed, however, that the, the minister was in the audience that evening, listening to the great orchestra, knowing that he'd be up on stage preaching the following morning. The man reached over and, and sarcastically asked the minister, When are you going to fill this hall on Sunday morning the way Sir John has tonight? The preacher looked his antagonist straight in the eye and said with a steady voice, 
I will fill this hall on Sunday morning when you give me, as you've given Sir John tonight, 85 disciplined men and women to be with me and to work with me. Jesus calls you friend. He has a place for you, a part for you. He's told you that he, he's told you his master's business. You have been bought into the family. So get on with the business. Crack on with it. We all have a part to play this week. He finishes up by saying, ask anything in my name and it will be granted. The key phrase here is the in my name part. When we come to him in prayer and to make requests, we can be assured that if it is in his will, it will be done. Now that God always answers our prayers, but we do need to be aware that sometimes his answer in his wisdom and in his love will be no. How many stories have you heard of people whose faith has been shipwrecked by the wrong understanding whereby they... They treat their prayer life and they treat God like some sort of cosmic vending machine. They press the right buttons and pull the right leaves, I saying and doing all the right things, then God somehow owes me. He, he owes me something and he, he has to give me what I, what I ask for. We move dangerously into territory of telling God what to do at, at that point. It's called prosperity doctrine or the prosperity gospel and it's a, it's a distortion of the Christian faith and it and it wrecks lives. He finishes up again by telling us to, to love each other for the third time that evening. So it must be important. He again commands us to, to, to love each other. So how are we going to do that uh, this coming week, church, in the marketplace? Given that we're not going to be our, well, I pray that we're not going to be called to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters in Christ the sin. I don't think that's likely to be the case for many of us this coming week. But I do think we can lay down our life in any number of little ways, just even a few hours of our lives this coming week in service to one another. There are many different ways that we can serve here at church in the marketplace. We're always looking for people to put their, their shoulder to the wheel. We need volunteers in any number of capacities. We're always looking for for new musicians, for, for real musicians, unlike myself, who bang out a few cowboy chords. We need people who know what they're doing, who are gifted in music. If that's you, we'd love to hear from you. We need Bible readers and prayers. We need uh, welcomers. We need people gifted to serve on, on church council, as Paul was saying today. We need people gifted in the areas of, of administration. We'd love some help midweek just welcoming people in living up to our church's name as church in the marketplace as we look to open up our doors once again post-COVID and to do so safely. We'd love some help on the front desk simply welcoming people, checking them in, acting as like a volunteer concierge or a welcomer perhaps. I know that not everyone is free midweek, but if you do, that might be another way that perhaps you can offer your life offer just maybe even an hour or two throughout the week to, to help the brothers and sisters in Christ manage this, this awesome building that we've, been, that we've been blessed with. I'm going to leave you with a story about the SS Dorchester. The SS Dorchester was a passenger cruise liner that was press-ganged into 
wartime duty as a troop ship, as a troop carrier, ferrying troops uh, across the Atlantic in the Second World War. Boarding the Dorchester on a dreary winter's day in 1943 were some 900 troops and four chaplains. At around 1pm on Friday the 3rd, a German torpedo ripped into the ship. The damage was severe. The boiler was lost and there was inadequate steam to even sound the full six-whistle signal to abandon ship. The Dorchester sank by the bow in about 20 minutes. The loss of power prevented the crew from even sending a radio distress signal. No rockets nor flares were launched to alert the escorts that it was a part of the other ships that were travelling with it. The severe list of the ship prevented the launch of some of the port side uh, lifeboats. Some of the lifeboats capsized due to overcrowding. Survivors in the water were so stiff from cold they could not even grasp the cargo nets on the rescue vehicles, on the rescue vessels. A young soldier crept up to one of the chaplains. I've lost my life jacket. Here, take this, said the chaplain, handing to the soldier his own life jacket. Before the ship sank, each of the four chaplains had given his life jacket to another man. The heroic chaplains linked arms and lifted their voices in prayer as the Dorchester went down. These four immortal chaplains, as they have become known, were posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. These men followed Jesus' command to love, knowing that it was the greatest of loves to lay down your life for your friends. We may not find ourselves in such dire circumstances this week, praise God, but I believe we can nevertheless go and do likewise wherever he may place us, in whatever situation we find ourselves, offering whatever resources he has blessed us with this week to love those that he has put around us and thereby to obey his commands and thereby to fulfil his will for our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, loving Lord, we seek your help this morning in living out this command to love, to love sacrificially, to love selflessly. Help us to spot those little opportunities to love and to serve this week. They may be seemingly insignificant, Father, but we pray that you might bring them to our attention and we pray that you might give us the courage, the boldness to take up the call to lay aside our own agendas, to lay aside our, our own ideals of comfort, to put aside our own stuff, lay aside our own life, to love and to serve those and thereby to love and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.